Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought the desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Corey. Beloved, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and then there's what Corey just read to us, which is the very word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, you graciously command us this morning to be still and to know that you are God. You will be exalted among the nations. You will be exalted in the earth. There's absolutely nothing, nothing that we need more this morning than to do that to be reminded to actually experience the truth of this passage that you are a refuge in our strength and a very present help in trouble. Would you, would you teach us? Would you calm fearful hearts would you make us like you? In Christ's name we pray, amen. On Tuesday evening, as is my practice, after work, I went home and I flipped on uh, the NBC Nightly News. Lester Holt came on the screen and he said, breaking news, U.S. forces under attack in Iraq. The Pentagon confirming more than a dozen ballistic missiles fired from Iran targeting Americans at two military bases. Iran state TV calling it revenge for the U.S. strike that killed its top commander. After the nightly news was over, I flipped over to the cable news channels, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and they were all three focused on the same thing. The topic of conversation was um, Iran's attack on America at two military bases having, uh, in response to the, the killing of General Soleimani. 
And the questions hanging in the air were, what are we going to do? How, how are we going to respond? Is, is this going to escalate into a full-scale war with Iran? What's our next move? The tone of the news, uh, as you might imagine, was fear. They were all three asking the same question. Is this the beginning of World War III? I heard those words uttered. Now, I'm savvy enough to know that the, the news channels want you to watch. And so they have a tendency to sort of um, I don't know, sensationalize things. So it's really, it's hard to, to know exactly how serious the threat was. And of course, we learned on Wednesday that the, the way that they were talking on Tuesday wasn't gonna actually take place. Um, but regardless of that fact, one thought crossed my mind Tuesday night and, and it was this. Our world is much more fragile than we tend to think. Uh, we live in the shadows of terrorism and the threat of war. We live with the reality of, of sickness and life-threatening diseases. We, we live in a secular age where the influences around us influence not only the way we think, but the way our children think. And, and we live knowing, even though we deny it a lot of the time, that we're all facing death. The day will come, if Jesus doesn't come before this happens, where we will all push up daisies. And here's the question, what do you do with that? How do you feel about that? What do you do with fear? Whether those fears are tied to world wars, terrorism, disease, the loss of a job, the, the, the unraveling of a relationship, or death itself. What do you do? Where, where do you turn? I think it's important to say a couple of things before we dive into this passage. And, and, and the first is this, that fear is basic to the human experience. Fear is natural to us, that we don't have to learn how, how to fear. If I walk up to you after church and you're holding your child in your arm and I put my arms out, what does your kid almost always do? Bury his or her head into you and cling tightly. Why is that? Apparently, I'm a scary guy. They're, they're afraid. Fear is basic to the human experience. More than that, fear isn't necessarily sinful. Now, I, I know the Bible says more than 300 times, do not fear. But did you not read what, or did you not think about what, what we read from, uh, in, in the assurance of pardon? That, that there is an appropriate fear, the, the fear of the Lord. In fact, we are commanded over and over and over again in scripture 
to fear the Lord. The, the Proverbs begins with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that there seems to be a right and an appropriate place for fear. The question isn't do you fear, it is what do you fear? What you fear is what makes the difference. Who you fear is what makes the difference. See, so here's the question, who do you fear? Who or what do you fear? And more importantly, how can you live a fearless life, a life of confidence in a fearful world? Psalm 43 answers that question for us. And the first thing that it describes here is the challenge to our confidence. Look at verses two and three. Though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swellings. Now, look down at verse six. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. This is not a pretty picture. The word translated moved and, and it tottered, the moved in verse two and tottered in verse six are actually the same Hebrew word and they, they describe instability that leads to insecurity. And the word that's translated roar in verse three and rage in verse six are also the same Hebrew word and they describe the threat of natural disaster and political upheavals and wars. The psalmist, what the psalmist is doing here is he's painting us a picture of our absolute worst nightmare. This is absolute chaos. It is cataclysmic destruction. In the ancient Near East, as I would assume in our minds as well, mountains are these pictures of security, of stability. We say things like solid is rock because rocks are solid, right? And water, in the ancient Near East, water was understood to be this picture of chaos and turmoil. What the psalmist is, is, is doing here is he is describing what we see in all of those dystopian books and movies that we see and read. The psalmist is describing the world's worst case scenario. And here's the question, how do you respond to your worst case scenario? Where do you turn with your fear? To whom or what do you run? You see, all of us run to something when we're afraid. All of us do. And, the, and, and where you run reveals something very important. It reveals what you really think. It, it reveals what you really love. It reveals what you really believe about life, about what is important, and most importantly, about what you believe about God. What do your fears tell you? 
And more importantly, where do you turn when you experience fear? Think for a minute about Jesus. Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he is betrayed. When, when he comes face to face with life's greatest fear. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon on Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, said that in the garden, Jesus stared into the very fires of hell so that he would know what he is walking into, for him to atone for us. He had to know what he was, he was doing. We read in that passage in Luke that Jesus agonized that he sweat drops of blood. He was appropriately afraid. What did he do? And he prayed. He, he turned to God, his father. He was honest with God. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He did not want to die in that moment. Elsewhere we read, that, that, that Jesus was, was so overtaken that he collapsed to the ground. And yet, what else did he do? His prayer didn't end with what I just said. His, his prayer ended with these words. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He trusted the Lord. He looked to the Lord. He was honest with the Lord and he trusted the Lord. Where do you turn with your fear? When things are going off the rails at work, when your family begins to unravel, when the doctor gives you the bad news, where do you turn? When death comes knocking at the door, where do you turn? Oftentimes when, when we face fear, we don't turn to God, do we? Rather, we turn to drink or we try to escape in various ways. We crawl into bed and we try to go to sleep. We turn to phrenic activity to try to busy ourselves, keep ourselves occupied. We fall into the arms of a lover. We head to the mall to do some retail therapy. We turn to the distractions of the internet or cell phones, or our gaming platform. Where we turn when we come face to face with fear reveals what we really believe. It exposes who and what we serve. It exposes what we really think about God. Beloved, where do you turn when you come face to face with your worst nightmare? What is the default mode of your heart? Where does the psalmist turn? We will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, we will not fear. How can the psalmist say such a thing? How can the 
the psalmist have such confidence in the face of catastrophe? What's the secret of his confidence? Look at verse one. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God is a very present help in trouble. A very present, God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Beloved, you need to know those words. You need to memorize those words. I clearly need to memorize those words. We need to meditate on those words. We need to ask God to help us to believe those words. We need to preach those words to ourselves and we need to preach them to one another. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God is our refuge. What does that mean? God is our protection. Or as the psalmist puts it elsewhere, the Lord is my shield and my strength. The Lord is like an underground bunker. He is impenetrable. He's like a cave deep in the side of a mountain. He's impervious. Elsewhere, the psalmist describes God as our hiding place. He is the cleft in the rock that protects us from wind and fire and lightning and thunderstorms. He is our safety. He is our security. That's what the psalmist is saying. This is, this is what we confess, we believe, when we recite in the Heidelberg Catechism question, or the answer to question number one, my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Do you believe that? God is your refuge. God is our refuge. Therefore, we will not fear. God is also... Our strength, what does that mean? It means that God is strong for his people. As Mitchell reminded us last week as we looked at Ephesians chapter one, the apostle Paul prays that we would know the power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is at work in us for us. Do you believe that? God is at work in us. God is at work for us. He is also at work in us. In in us, doing what? Enabling us to bear up under whatever trial we might face. Maybe you remember the story of, of Abraham and Sarah. God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Um, About this time next year, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. Of course, if you know their story, you know that they can't have children. Sarah is barren, and they are very, very old. Sarah is overhearing. She's eavesdropping on this conversation. And when she hears God say, this time next year, your wife is going to have a child, a son, she laughs. God, being God, hears her and asks this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? He wasn't actually asking a question, it was rhetorical. He was making a point. He was saying to Abraham and to Sarah and he's saying to us, nothing is too hard 
for the Lord. He is our strength. The psalmist is reminding us of us this. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. I remember when my friend Dustin Salter lay in a coma on the 10th floor of Greenville Memorial Hospital. His wife, Leanne, as concerned as she was about her husband's life, as concerned as she was about her children, as, as concerned as she was about the future, she seemed to have this almost supernatural strength and stability, this, this steadfastness. I remember Kathy and I were talking about it one night, and I said, I, I, I just don't, I don't think I could do that. I don't, I don't think I could do what Leanne is doing. I don't think I could be that kind of person. I'm afraid I would just, I would just melt. I'm afraid I would just I would die. And then it occurred to me, it wasn't Leanne. It was the Lord. He was her strength. He was working in her and through her. Leanne didn't have that strength in and of herself. It was God who was her strength. Leanne became a walking example of what Jesus promises the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. That God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God is our refuge, therefore we will not fear. God is our strength, therefore we will not fear. But God is, just, God is not just a refuge in strength. God is not just strong. He's also good. The psalmist tells us that God is a very present help in trouble. In other words, God is for us. God is for you. God is for you. Do you believe that? In everything, God is for you, for his glory and for your good. Do you believe that? I love the story of Joseph. I read this this morning. Joseph is the 11th of 12 sons. He is his father's favorite and his brothers hate him. They hate him so much that when they get the opportunity, they scheme to murder him. But they think better and they decide instead, let's just sell him into slavery. And that's exactly what they do. Years later, the brothers, the 11 brothers, are, 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 are dying because of a famine. So they go to Egypt to get food. And who do they meet? You remember who they meet? They meet Joseph. Of course, they don't know that it's Joseph, but they meet Joseph. And they end up having a, a sweet reunion, although it's a sweet reunion with the undercurrent being fear. You know that because when their father died, the 11 brothers, actually it's 10 brothers who were against him, the 10 brothers who sold him into slavery are terrified. They think, now, he, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna exact revenge. Do you remember what Joseph says? His brothers come to him and they fall down on their knees to him and they weep and they cry and they beg him for mercy. And Joseph says, do not be afraid. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Beloved, God is for you. God is for you. It might seem like evil. It might seem bad, but God is for you. God is always for you. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that uh, God guarantees you a life of ease. God never promises you your best life now. In fact, in our passage, we read, 
God is our refuge and strength, a very present help when in trouble. This passage presupposes trouble. God never promises to deliver us from trouble. He, he promises to help us in our trouble. And he doesn't only help us in our trouble the way a local fire department helps you if you have a fire. You know, if you have a fire, you call the fire department and you wait and you hope that they get here and, and, you, and you look at your clock and you wait and, and you hope that, that they're not already out on another call. What the psalmist says here, though, is different. He says that, the, that, that God is with us in our trouble. Verse seven, the Lord of hosts is with us. Or as King David put it in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, said, I am with you always, even to the end of the ages. Elsewhere, God promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What does this mean for you and for me? One pastor put it like this. He said, the secret to confidence, the secret to living a, a confident life in a fearful world is the nearness of God. Because he, he knew, he knew that God is his refuge in strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our refuge, therefore we will not fear. God is our strength, therefore we will not fear. God is a very present help in trouble, therefore we will not hear one more thing. God is at work for the blessing and the comfort of his people, therefore we will not fear. Now, where, where do I see that in this passage? Well, look at verse four. The psalmist writes, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. In the Hebrew, the words there is aren't there at the beginning of, of, of the verse, which, which means that the author's point was a point of comparison on the one hand, you have seas swallowing up on mountains, and on the other hand, you have this picture of this river within its God-ordained banks, providing for the needs and the comfort of the people. From our perspective, the world might seem like it is spinning dangerously out of control, but from God's perspective, even earth-shaking catastrophes are nothing more than a river contained within the bounds of a God-ordained banks, designed ultimately for our joy and refreshment and comfort? What does this mean? It means this. God was not on break on Tuesday. He wasn't on break. God was not on break when you got your diagnosis. God was not on break when you lost your job. God never goes on break. More than that, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 8, for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
So here's the question. What is, what is God doing when he allows us to come face to face with our greatest fears? In the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul had gone on a missionary journey to plant churches. He goes to Asia thinking he's going to plant a church and instead he ends up staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. He literally thinks he's going to die. And he writes these words. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God is our refuge, therefore we will not fear. God is our strength, therefore we will not fear. God is our very present help in trouble, therefore we will not fear. And God is at work for our good, bringing life out of death, therefore we will not fear. So what are we to do? What are we to do when we come face to face with our greatest fears? What is to be the focus of our confidence? Look at the last half of verse five. God will help her when morning dawns. What's the psalmist doing? All the commentators agree on this point that the language that the psalmist uses in verse five would have drawn immediately to mind for the original readers, the Exodus, the story of Israel's salvation from slavery and potential genocide in Egypt. Look at verses eight and nine. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire over and over and over throughout the history of Israel. God had come to the rescue of his people when there was absolutely no hope. Just read the book of Judges or the book of Samuel or the books of Kings or Esther or Daniel. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? No hope. Do you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? No hope. Over and over and over, God rescues and delivers his people from hopelessness, from imminent death and destruction at the hands of foreign mega powers. And God is saying to them, remember. And that's exactly what he's saying to us. Remember, remember God's deliverance. Think back on your life. Surely you have these experiences where you've seen God's protection on you. You've seen God care for you. Have you ever had an experience where from one side you thought it was an utter and complete disaster, but when you got on the other side and you looked back, you realized God was was protecting you. Maybe it was a relationship that you really wanted to work, but it, it didn't. And you were devastated. But today, you realize that God had something infinitely better in mind for you. Maybe it was a job that you really wanted and didn't get. 
and you were deeply disappointed. But today, you realize that God knew what he was doing. I don't know what it is for you. I've had both of those experiences. But we need to take time and think about and contemplate and reflect on our past to to see where we can see the fingerprints of God's gracious um, protection on our lives. Not only protecting us from others, from things out there, but protecting us from ourselves. More than that, we need to meditate on the cross. The Israelites had the exodus to look to. The psalmist is calling the Israelites' recollection back to the exodus. But on this side of the cross, we have what the exodus pointed to. We have the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this mean for here and now? What does this mean for believers who's lie, who live in a world that, that, that totters on the precipice of war? What does this mean for believers who face disease and death and disappointment? The Apostle Paul asks a very similar question to Romans 8. He asks, what shall we say of these things? And then he answers, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he also, how will he not also give us all things? Beloved, the, the Apostle John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And perfect love is what we see on the cross. Jesus says to his disciples and he says to us, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And the fact is this, God's love for us is so great that Paul asks this hypothetical question to give us this answer. He says, what shall separate you from the love of Christ? You know what the answer is. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, it's the love of Christ that will drive out all fear. Where do you turn when you come face to face with your greatest fear? Where or who, who or what do you turn to when the world seems to be coming unraveled? What do you do when it seems like darkness is your only friend? God says to us this morning, be still and know that I am God. I am your refuge. I am your strength. 
I am your very present help in trouble. I am at work for your good. I love you with a love that will never let you go and I will never leave you and never forsake you. This is important to know as we think back on the events of the week. And it's even more important to know as we begin a new year. Remember this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him and look to him in faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the psalm. Lord, we believe. Please help us overcome our unbelief. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.